Hi, um, welcome to this new edition of Technocast. Uh, my name is Benjamin Bland and I'm currently in the fourth and final year of a techno-funded PhD in the Department of History at Royal Holloway University of London. Um, I'm predominantly a historian of 20th century Britain, albeit often in a transnational or global context. Um, and I focus particularly on the post-war period and especially on the politics of nationalism, race and immigration um, in that period. And in this short podcast, I'm going to talk first about my research. Uh, then I've been asked to talk a little bit about more practical matters related to the PhD experience, um, especially publishing. So after I've discussed my PhD project, I'll spend some time talking about how the need to publish, and perhaps also about how the need to teach has informed the way in which I work. And this sort of somewhat inevitably may become a sort of slightly uh, broader discussion about um, being an early career humanities researcher and how the sort of precarious and constrained nature of this position within the academy informs the work that I and others in my position do. So to start with my PhD project, um, my thesis is currently entitled A Fascination with Fascism, the Extreme Right and Underground Music Culture in Britain, circa 1975-1999. to 1999. And unlike previous work on British fascist politics, I'm not interested in providing an account of their sort of visible activities or ideology so much, as I am in, in trying to provide a more complex interpretation of the role of fascism in contemporary British culture and society. Building um, in particular, and especially I think in, on the work of Paul Gilroy, and particularly his observations about the centrality of victory over fascism in the Second World War to British national identity, my thesis explores what I think is really the remarkable persistence um, in the face of an almost complete absence of orthodox political success um, of extreme right politics um, in 20th century Britain. So in fact the main question that has animated my work has been that of why in a country like Britain that has no real history or experience of fascism as a political system, uh, extreme right forms of politics have remained a near constant element. Um, and my thesis suggests that on a subcultural level there are actually many reasons for this, and rather more importantly that actually British fascists may have had rather more of an influence than their lack of political power might imply. So in the first half of my thesis, I focus purely on the history of British fascist groups since the mid-1970s, and I try to emphasise the degree to which these organisations, most notably the National Front, um, and since 1982, the British National Party, have managed to um, embed themselves within the political landscape of this country. Uh, so even though they've remained on the fringes of politics, I suggest that British fascists have retained a certain degree of mainstream reach and an ability to make noteworthy interventions in national life. I then investigate the way in which British fascists have attempted to act out their political beliefs outside mainstream society, um, almost as countercultural groups with their own behavioural rituals and standards, their own social organisations, etc. And this, I ultimately suggest, feeds into the most dangerous elements of the extreme right, uh, chiefly the penchant for racial violence and terrorism. So I argue that the subcultural nature of British fascism has increased its tendency to engage in these behaviours, uh, at the same time as still maintaining a sort of more a democratic public face um, by participating in elections, etc., etc. Uh, but nonetheless, I do refer uh, here to relatively famous events like the Battle of Lewisham in 1977 or the London nail bombings in 1999. And I suggest that the sort of extreme subcultural nature of these groups, and particularly the sort of rituality that these groups participate in, um, in the sort of fascist underground, as I call it. Um, which occasionally has vaguely occultist leanings, but this sort of does lead into, while some of it's quite easy to laugh at and sort of brand as ridiculous neo-Nazi worship and whatever, um, does actually lead into quite serious acts of violence and terror that we need to take very seriously.
now the second half of the thesis is where the music comes in. Uh, so I suggest underground music culture has repeatedly shown a, a slightly bizarre and sometimes deeply problematic fascination with fascist ideas and aesthetics, uh, particularly since the rise of punk um, in the mid to late 1970s. Uh, now, this is not about accusing artists of harbouring fascist sympathies, uh, but instead it's about highlighting the degree to which elements of Britain's cultural landscape have tended to reinforce racial hierarchies and provide spaces for rather dubious and often not very well considered acts of transgression and the, the regular use of fascism um, is an example of this, I suggest. So this second part of the thesis really starts with the rise of punk. It makes reference to some famous artists like Joy Division and Morrissey, but it also focuses um, on less well-known acts, including some such as the notorious skinhead band Screwdriver, who openly affiliates with fascist politics. I provide particularly in-depth analyses of two music cultures that originated in late 1970s and early 1980s Britain, but which have gone on to have a rather problematic global reputation, uh, namely the industrial and neo-folk cultures. And in these two case studies in particular, I emphasise the degree to which music culture can effectively provide a space of sort of incubation for extremist political views, uh, whether intentionally or not, uh, through the desire to appear transgressive and to resist mainstream cultural languages and aesthetics. And then sort of bringing those two parts of the thesis together, you know, what I really look to do is suggest that is sort of to explain the way in which Britain has uh, continued to have this sort of underground fascist presence. And I effectively argue this is not something that exists purely in a political sense, but also has a sort of uh, slightly more obscure uh, cultural tangent to it as well. I think it's probably fairly obvious that all this work has been shaped to a fairly significant extent by the political context in which it has been produced. So when I started working on this project, um, Brexit was still seen as wildly unlikely. Uh, Donald Trump had not yet announced his candidature to be President of the United States, and Tommy Robinson, or to give his real name Stephen Yaxley Lennon, was generally regarded as a bit of a joke, rather than someone with significant political influence. What is perhaps not particularly apparent from that summary of my research is the degree to which my work has been shaped by the demands of early career academia. Uh, with its emphasis increasingly on metrics and research impact and its penchant for necessitating those of any aspirations whatsoever of pursuing an academic career engage in what is generally fairly poorly remunerated uh, teaching work. Now, I'm not saying that either of these things are inherently terrible, although certainly the focus on metrics, I think, definitely is, um, but I think they do profoundly change the nature of academic research, especially at an early career stage. So I think this is particularly true in relation to publishing. So I think probably the biggest thing I've learned about academic publishing over the course of a PhD, um, aside from you know it becoming increasingly obvious how uh, how much of it is reliant on people working for free, um, and how inaccessible it is to the wider public, but those are sort of things I was already fairly aware of. Um, but I think probably the biggest thing I've learned is the need to be quite tactical about what it is you want to submit and to where. So I say this as someone who has various uh, academic job applications on the go at the moment. I'm having to spend a lot of time at present, not just on finishing my PhD thesis, but also on planning my next two or maybe even three publications. Uh, so I have a couple of articles I am to submit to journals next year, hopefully in the first half of the year, uh, because the next Research Excellence Framework, or REF, uh, takes place in 2021, and having the articles eligible for that exercise would be extremely handy and would, could make the difference between getting a job or not. Um, but I would stress and particularly to those of you who are sort of perhaps in the earliest stages of your PhD work, that it can take an extremely long time for articles to appear in print. So they need to be assessed by editors, uh, then they need to be double-blind peer-reviewed, 
Uh, then there needs to be assigned an issue for publication, and this process can easily take 18 months to two years or even longer, uh, especially in the most competitive and most read, most prestigious journals, which certainly in a discipline such as history, where you have more PhDs uh, coming through than ever, but less jobs for them to go into, uh, generally these are the journals you do need to be aiming for if you want to make a sort of significant impact in the field. Now I've been lucky thus far in that I've managed to get sort of two peer-reviewed referable publications finished to date, um, and these have largely come through contacts I made early in the PhD. Uh, so I have contributed a chapter to an edited collection, uh, edited by the Subcultures Network, and published early this year by Manchester University Press. Um, it's out in paperback in 2019, um, called Rip, Torn and Cut, Pop Politics and Punk Fanzines from 1976. Um, and my contribution is on transgression in industrial fanzines, was something I was invited to contribute uh, when I was only a few months into my PhD work. Now this made it a good sort of warm-up first publication, for want of a better term, but realistically it probably won't have a huge bearing on my ability to get a job, or really it won't be considered a good sort of referable publication. This is in spite of the fact that, especially when the paperback is out, um, this work will probably be read more widely than anything else I write during the PhD, certainly in my PhD thesis. Um, now, the other publication I've completed today is an article in the journal Patterns of Prejudice, uh, which is one of the leading journals in the field of humanities and social sciences that deals with issues of historical and contemporary social exclusion on the basis of race and or religion. Uh, so my article, which arose out of a conference paper I gave in 2016, um, is about extreme right anti-Zionism and Holocaust inversion, which is effectively a method of Holocaust denial uh, based on comparing the state of Israel to Nazi Germany. Now, this is obviously a rather different piece, uh, that largely comes straight out of my PhD, rather than being an offshoot of it. Uh, and whilst I obviously hope that, especially in the longer term, the article will have an impact in the field, realistically it probably won't be read as widely as my book chapter, uh, despite the importance of the subject matter and the fact that it will be in a leading journal. But that means that it will in itself be considered more referable. Equally, I've done a lot of teaching during my PhD, um, and certainly in one case I it was a sort of spent an entire term working as a visiting lecturer at a university other than the one at which I'm based, um, which involved me having to write lectures every week, effectively running a whole course. Um, so the working conditions uh, in which PhD students often have to teach aren't very flattering. Um, and often you also will find that you wouldn't be teaching what you know. Um, but I do think, you know, teaching perhaps more than the sort of uh, lottery of sort of academic publishing um, is something that you can spin around and make a positive, because it does make you think very much about how you communicate uh, complex ideas and therefore how you communicate your research. And also, unless you're teaching something that's completely at odds with what it is you study, um, I think you can let it shape your research if possible. Um, I think it's possible for ideas from even teaching something that's only very tangentially related to the research you do uh, can make you think more about how your research might develop and how you might present your thesis. And particularly, I think, reading journal articles on things that you are interested in rather than just things that are directly related to what you research means you probably will end up reading a lot of very very good pieces of work and that does make you think a lot about how how you can make your own work better but the biggest thing i'd probably stress is that doing all these things in four years is quite hard um especially with publishing element as i say this is something that takes a long period of time and you have to spend a lot of time thinking about um, and it can be very frustrating because you can have something uh, away with a journal under review for you know a year or more and then get it back and being told it's rejected. Um, so this is something you have to be uh, quite sort of mentally strong 
about, but you also have to think seriously about whether it's worth submitting certain things to certain places at certain times. The PhD probably, uh, you know, is best thought of as a hoop that you have to jump through, particularly if you are attempting to try and go on and gain an academic career. Um, You know, it's not going to be a profound piece of perfect work and realistically probably won't be read by that many people unless you get the opportunity to turn it into a book later. Um, So all these things, I think, do really shape the way in which uh, PhD students today work and I think in a discipline like history especially someone like me who's spent a lot of the last four years working in archives um, it becomes very tough when you sort of realise that the majority of the work you put in isn't directly going anywhere you know, the majority of the stuff you look at in these archives doesn't actually end up in your thesis um, so finding other routes and other ways to use this work is something that certainly I've found really important um, and that I think is something that all sort of uh, PhD students should sort of strive to do if possible uh, so that's my contribution to the Techno podcast um, thanks for listening and I hope that at least some of that was interesting and or informative uh, as to the PhD experience